Hello, everybody. This is Jen Dunlap with Bright Families Nutrition. Today, we're going to talk about nutrition and health for college girls. This is based on a talk that I gave at my alma mater, Thomas Aquinas College, to a bunch of a variety of girls there one evening at their dorm meeting. And I thought a lot about what I remembered from college and what seemed like it would be useful for these girls to be thinking about as they wrapped up their year. Ideally, I would have talked to them in the fall, uh, but I didn't make it happen. This was in the spring as they were finishing up. So college is a time of amazing opportunity. As everybody knows, you have a lot of options of what you can do with your time and energy, and you don't have that much responsibility compared with the real world. You can stay up late. You can get up early, you can binge on junk food, you can try weird diets, you can drink and smoke, and even at a conservative college, you can get drugs if you're really motivated. You're also still growing, so there's a lot to think about nutritionally. You have not reached your peak bone mass. Your brain is still pruning cells and tying everything together. So I talked to the girls, and I'm going to talk today about what's happening in the body in those years, 18 to 22, 23, so that they could have some ideas about how to make the best of that opportunity. So one very concrete thing to start with is building bones. You've probably heard that exercise builds your bones, which it does. Because any stress on the body sends messages about what to do to cope in the future with similar stresses that might come up. So if you lift heavy things, your bones feel the strain and respond by getting stronger. It's analogous to how lifting weights tears your muscles and then stimulates the growth. Your bone mass doubles between about age 10 and 20. So in college, you're still building up to your peak bone mass. And what happens before the bone mass is totally filled in is that the matrix, the overall structure of the bone gets built first as you hit your height. And then that matrix is slowly filled in and it's not really done being filled in until you're in your late 20s. So college is not the time to go hungry as your body builds bones. Bone also grows while you sleep, and studies show that bone growth is slowed when people are sleep-deprived, especially young people. The difference between sleep-depriving a young person and an old person in terms of what it does to their bones is very different. Nutrition is really important for bones because bones are made of the nutrients you've eaten. So we think about bones as being calcium, but they're actually mostly made out of collagen, which gives them some flexibility. Otherwise, they would be too brittle to be practical. And we make collagen out of protein, the amino acids we get from protein, and vitamins in our diet. We can also eat collagen when we have bone broth with gelatin. So When you're in college, you're not doing your own cooking normally, and the kitchen staff is not going to boil the chicken carcass like your grandma. 
So it might be worth considering supplementing collagen in college if you would like to hit your peak bone mass. And this is especially an issue for women because your bone mass tends to go down fairly dramatically later on during menopause, and your bone mass is never as dense as a man's bones in the first place. So it's something that women have to be more mindful of. Collagen as a supplement mixes smoothly into hot drinks, and it doesn't really add any taste. So I would recommend just trying it in your coffee or smoothies or hot, some hot tea or anything like that. Of course, if you're not eating enough overall, you won't have the raw materials to build bone. So, so skipping, skipping breakfast has been shown to compromise bone growth in young people. It's not clear why. It could be that we make poor choices about the other food to eat later in the day because we get so, so hungry. Or it could be that a steadier supply of calories is better when you're in such a rapid growth phase of life. But either way, it's important to eat enough um, and move enough. Okay. Another thing to think about in college is this brain pruning thing. Your brain has so many neurons, they're very, very stimulated when you're young. And as you go through adolescence and adulthood, your brain prunes, basically decides which ones are more important, which pathways are more important to keep and strengthen those. Now that we all have phones, we can miss a lot of personal interaction in college. We're often so preoccupied that even if we don't have phones, we can be so preoccupied with what is going on in our heads that we miss a lot of what's going on with the people around us. We don't see it. We filter it through our experience, our, through our preconceptions about what's going on. We assume. So making eye contact with the people around you and giving them your full attention is better for you and for them on a physical level. The feeling of being seen by another person is incredibly valuable for our physical and emotional well-being. And isolation, as we all know, can feel like death if you're ever ostracized from the group. So even if you're an introvert and you don't have a ton of social energy, of course you want to know that you matter to someone. Owning your feelings can be hard and it can be embarrassing, but that honesty will save you a lot of time and energy down the road. So all of those are reasons to just think about how you're treating your brain. College can be a fresh start for many people. If you have some family patterns that you wanted to kind of leave behind, if you have new habits that you wanted to implement, if you wanted to look at the world in a different way, it's a great opportunity. You're in a different situation with different people and a different set of responsibilities than you would have had before. So you can make the conscious choices that help your brain to do its best. And just be aware that this is a time where your brain is changing. I'd like to talk about uh, some other habits, drinking and smoking. So the edgy, cool people tend to smoke and you know, you're not going to get a lot of judgment from me. I smoked, I dated smokers. But I think the problem is with smoking and drinking, what it represents and replaces. 
It's a social lubricant because you can sit and smoke in situations where you might find it challenging to prolong a conversation otherwise. It's a ritual to transition from one activity to another, especially for people who find decisions challenging or who have a hard time sorting out their feelings. Smoking also dampens your feelings. This can be really useful for, say, living in the trenches during wartime, uh, living in prison, but living in modern stability, if you feel like you need to smoke your way through your day, you probably just need to improve your coping skills. And many, many people who smoke in college just quit after they graduate. It's just kind of a college thing and they kind of walk away from it in that decade after they graduate. So as a parent, this is not something I would agonize about for my own kid, but just to kind of make them aware of what's going on. Drinking is a little bit different biochemically. There's a biochemical process, depending on your metabolism and how fast you metabolize the alcohol, drinking can be a sedative or euphoric or give you an adrenaline rush. And while you won't hear people say they were addicted after the first cigarette, many people say they felt addicted after the first drink. Not all, but you know, a certain percentage of people. This is probably because they already were carrying some depression or anxiety with them. And then the drink brings this relief. But we do know that some people are just much more susceptible to developing a habit around alcohol. So what I would tell my daughter when she goes to college and what I'll tell you is what is alcohol covering up? If you're drinking with other people and you have to drink to have a good time with them, then there's something funny going on, right? If you have a good time with them drinking and not drinking, that's different. If you're not drinking and the people you're with are drinking, your experience of the same event is going to be very different. And I saw this happen and I experienced this myself because I was usually the not drinker. And I would assume that what was going on was a lot more real than the drinkers were experiencing it to be. So people say things that are kind of melodramatic and emotional. It all seems very real. And if you're the non-drinker, you take it very literally. And then you could be very disappointed later to realize it's actually not as real as you thought it was. I'll also add that the relationships from my college friends who got married, the relationships that have not lasted, which is only a few, were people who were drinking heavily um, during a lot of the time they dated each other. And again, I think it's not fair to say that the alcohol was the primary problem, but the primary problem was that they wanted to be in a relationship and the drinking was a way that they masked all of their actual disagreements and friction that was going on in the relationship because they just so needed it to work. So if you have a relationship that doesn't work without alcohol, it's just not a good relationship. Both smoking and drinking obviously are used to mask depression or anxiety. And then on a physical level, in some ways, they can both perpetuate depression or anxiety. Firstly, because they allow you to wing it and not get the help that you need. 
but secondly, through the actual chemical changes that happen, the adaptation of your brain to the different chemicals that are going to be available with these drugs or the alcohol, and also through the nutrient deficiencies that can result either directly as a result of your body processing these compounds or indirectly because you smoke instead of eat or you drink instead of eat, which is a very common, common behavior. Okay. So just some thoughts about that. Don't want to be a purist, but just, you should be aware. So another pretty challenging area for college students is sleep. There's just so many things going on. So many conversations to happen and there's night prayer at 11 and you don't want to miss that. And then after night prayer, you start talking to somebody and pretty soon it's 1230 in the morning and you've got to wake up for your kitchen shift at eight and it's kind of brutal. Now, if you're missing sleep, first of all, your bones are not going to grow as well. Secondly, you'll be more prone to depression and anxiety if you're sleep deprived. That's been shown again and again. And thirdly, you just won't learn as well which is kind of a shame when you're there to learn. And you'd really like to remember those fabulous experiences you're having, but they are not going to stick the same way if you're perpetually sleep deprived. So ideally, you'd get up at, you know, a little bit before class. You'd get some morning sunlight, just a few minutes. If you can get 30 minutes, that's great. If you take a walk or you sit outside after breakfast or something, That sets your circadian rhythm to help you fall asleep more easily at night. Then if you're out again towards the middle of the day, early afternoon, getting, you know, working on your tan or whatever, that's going to be the sunlight that helps you get some vitamin D. It's hard to get all of your vitamin D from sunlight, but it's good to get some of it. And if you keep your heavier exercise for earlier in the day or at least two hours before bed, That can also help you fall asleep and stay asleep easily. Another thing, of course, is to make your room as dark as you can. Maybe a little on the chilly side, maybe some white noise. But the biggest challenge as a college student is to just go to bed, just to say no. Say, no, I'm, you know, I'm just tired. I'm going to sleep. So I'm going to give an example of, I'm kind of a morning person. Um, People would say, could you please stop singing at 6.30, you know, because I would just wake up feeling ready to go and be singing as I brushed my teeth or, you know, went to the bathroom or something, which I think drove some people nuts. So I had to learn to not sing in the morning. And I really did not do well staying up at night. It was just hard for me. So some ways I found to work around this was that often I would just, you know, take a little nap or go to bed early on the nights that I could And some nights, like if there was a dance or a party, but the dance starts at nine and you know it'll go till 12 or one, sometimes I would just go take a nap before the dance. Uh, After dinner, I'd just go to sleep. So like six o'clock, I'd sleep till 7.30 or eight, kind of take a weird late nap, which of course wrecks your ability to go to sleep early that night. But that's the point. If you're going to be fresh for a dance from nine till two or whatever, then that works great. So that's just kind of a weird thing I would do that worked pretty well. So in college, people often get sick, right? Things just go around, especially around finals or when people are kind of run down or eager to get home. 
you can have like a, a cough that goes around or some kind of, often it's a respiratory thing in college. Could even be a bad, bad stomach flu fever thing. So I'm going to share an example that illustrates something really interesting about the immune system. This is a really memorable example to me. Before I went to Thomas Aquinas, I was at a less conservative college that didn't have such strict rules about PDA, public displays of affection. And there was this young couple in love. Um, we'll call them Mike and Melissa. And they were all over each other. They were inseparable. And they were both short on sleep. But Mike loved his pizza and soda. Sometimes he would even pour extra sugar in his soda or lemonade. And Melissa liked to eat real food, pretty much. She'd eat cottage cheese and fruit. She'd eat a salad. She'd eat a bowl of soup. She'd drink water or milk. Mike came down with strep and mono at the same time. Now, as you probably know, mono is supposed to be super contagious and strep. So Melissa, by any calculations, should have gotten it, but she didn't get anything. It's simple to imagine that things just go around and it's inevitable to catch them, but there is a lot more to it because our susceptibility is a big part of the equation. For one thing, we're prone to different sicknesses by our constitution and our habits. Um, for another thing, our general health, such as the level of vitamins in our system at that moment, our hydration, whether, you know, if we're drinking our water and our stress levels all affect our immune system. So you've got your kind of genetic habits and your nutritional status at that moment. So this example of this young couple really illustrated for me how much your food and lifestyle make a difference. This girl did not eat junk food. She ate real food. She took her vitamins every day that her parents had sent her with. And she did this weird thing that I thought was super, super dumb, but was clearly a great stress coping mechanism. She had stuffed animals on her bed and she had coloring books of Winnie the Pooh because she loved Pooh. This was not a dumb girl. This just blew my mind. This was a girl who basically aced the SAT. And here she was coloring pictures of Winnie the Pooh. So I said, that's interesting. And she said, oh, it's super relaxing. I'm like, okay, whatever. But based on how well her immune system worked, she had a system that really, really worked for her. And she was a good judge of how to manage her stress levels. So she was doing all the things. And even though she should have gotten sick, she didn't. It's very, very interesting. So keep that in mind. If you're taking good care of yourself, especially getting enough sleep, drinking enough water, and eating mostly real food, not like you have to be an obsessive purist about it, but mostly real food, that's going to go a long way towards making your immune system run the best that it can. Okay, so another thing to talk about with college girls especially. We often try out weird diets, you know, juice fast, keto, low carb, vegetarian for Lent, all these different things. And those things can affect your, 
your sleep and your menstrual cycle and your appetite and all sorts of things. So with any of those diets, I guess the main question is, is it really medically indicated? If you're overweight, if you have definite hormonal problems and you'd like to try a ketogenic diet or a extremely low carb diet, then it's probably going to give you some benefits. If you're not overweight, it's a little more of a toss up whether you're going to have any benefits from it. It can be hard to eat enough if you're not overweight on certain kinds of diets. And it's easy to get underweight if you become too restrictive and then you'll feel anxious. You just won't feel well, period. And the difference between 19% body fat and 21% body fat could be a few pounds, but it could be a world of difference for your mood and the reliability of your cycle and your skin and other things. So unless you're supermodeling on the sides and somebody's paying you to be, you know, extra lean. If you have some reason you're doing it, then sure. But if you don't have a reason to be super restrictive, um, you know, movie stars and people who have to do this, they're the first ones to say, like, just if you don't have to, why would you? Why would you live on chicken and broccoli if you if nobody cares that you have that extra couple of pounds less? So a normal cycle is classically 28 to 30 days, but there's really kind of a range of about 24 to 40 days. By the time you're in college, they should be somewhat reliable. Um, if you, if you started cycling very late, if you were very lean and athletic in high school, if you were a ballet dancer or a swimmer or a gymnast, your body fat may have been too low to start your cycle. Your body fat has to at least statistically speaking, it has to get over, be over 20% to initiate a cycle. And if you've been lean your whole life, it just might be harder for your body to get it going. So we number those days of your cycle, starting with the first day of bleeding. So first day of your period is day one. If everything's working, you're going to ovulate. An egg is released somewhere in the middle of that. So day 14-ish, give or take, you know, several days. After the egg pops out, the hormones stay up for a few days and then they go down. They have to get down to a certain level in order to allow the lining to shed for your next period. If the hormones don't go down, if they don't go down at the pace that they should, you're going to feel kind of backed up. You won't bleed, you'll feel edgy or maybe emotional those last few days before your period. If your hormones are low overall, you might have frequent bleeding called breakthrough bleeding. You might bleed basically during the ovulation period in addition to bleeding at your regular periods. Some people, when their hormones get low, don't have extra bleeding. They have less bleeding. They have light periods or their periods just stop altogether. Any sudden change in diet or a restriction in calories can cause weird things to happen with your cycle. They can cause you to have breakthrough bleeding or missed periods I've heard of college girls losing their periods during Lent when they give up sweets because apparently that was a key source of their calories. I've heard of them getting mid-cycle bleeding when they lose weight, which is a pain. So just to be aware, if you start experimenting a lot and really changing the way you eat, even if it's overall a good thing, it can cause some weirdness with your cycle. 
And at least 20% of girls test as anemic. I think that's an underestimate for reasons that are too complicated to explain right now. But by the basically by the time you test your hemoglobin as anemic, your iron has been lo- very low for some time. And many people actually have low iron stores for many months before they ever test as having low hemoglobin. So it's a very, it's a very crude test. But if 20% of girls are officially testing as anemic, that makes me think that many more girls are actually kind of anemic, especially in their 20s. So if you can tolerate meat and beans and a variety of green leafy vegetables, you need to eat a really good varied diet and consider supplementing with a good multivitamin that will include some iron. Also, I find that I'm particularly hungry at the end of my period, and I just want to eat everything in sight. It's normal for your appetite to rise and fall, and your energy levels to rise and fall in the course of your cycle. So you just need to be kind of respectful of that system. And you might have a lot of energy right before your period where you're just feeling kind of edgy and anxious, and that's the time to do extra exercise. Just really, you know, go for that long hike, do something really cardio. Then when you're on your period, if you don't feel like exercising, just rest, you know, maybe take a walk, but don't do something epic. And then after your period, it's quite likely you'll need to restock on nutrients. And just really be mindful of that. Eat as much as you'd like as you're stocking up because you may, if you're extra hungry, there's probably a reason. So these are just a few different things to think about as you go through your teen years. I hope some of this is helpful for high school girls. Just different things to think about, about how to treat your body well and feel good during these awesome, awesome years of opportunity. All right, that's all for today. Thanks for listening.